0: called Challenge 2.0. Who belongs and who doesn't? That's the central question of nationalism. During the 2016 and now the 2020 presidential campaign, the answer has frequently been white Americans belong, and those of color or faiths other than Christianity, particularly Islam, do not. But nationalism and the aggression that can be part of it is not confined to the United States. There's evidence this phenomena isn't confined within a country. but may be contagious, crossing borders, creating discord at home and abroad. One such example is the subject of this week's challenge episode, Hindu nationalism. We have three guests, wonderful guests, to guide us in this discussion. Anilav Zali has been a regular guest on this program and serves as the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. She was also named by Seattle Magazine as one of their 2017 Most Influential People in Seattle, and I believe that continues to be the case this year as well. Anila, thank you so much for joining us. Terry Kylo serves as Executive Director of Paths to Understanding, which sponsors this program and for which I serve as a board member. Terry is an ordained Lutheran pastor and has devoted much of his attention to the issues of dehumanization and Islamophobia. Raghav Kaushik moved from India to the United States to earn a PhD in computer science and engineering. He has worked for Microsoft in their data management program since then. Raghav has become involved in opposing Islamophobic laws passed in India, as well as oppression of other castes and classes. He also writes about politics in various periodicals. And Raghav, thank you very much for joining us as well. We knew 2020 was going to be an eventful year with a highly polarized election, both for the presidency and all the down-ballot offices and measures that are on the ballot. The COVID pandemic, police killings of black men, the resulting protests, the increasing impact of climate change has added to the overwhelming demands already in existence on our attention. Nationalism remains responsible for part of the polarization we're seeing. That seems to be agreed by commentators on all sides of the political spectrum stoking prejudice against racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. Islamophobia is evident in a new and growing nationalism movement, Hindu nationalism. Raghav, you come from a Hindu background. Can you give us a little bit of a better sense of what Hindu nationalism is and what it's all about?
1: I wanted to start off by saying that, uh, yes, I was raised in a Hindu background, but right now I'm atheist, and I, I, don't, I disagree with uh, most of the organized religions out there. So, I just want to state that out, but I was raised with a Hindu background, so I am pretty very well plugged into uh, what we call Hindu nationalism. As far as Hindu nationalism goes, there is sort of a textbook definition. So let me start off by telling you what the textbook definition is, and then I, let me give you my modifications to it. The textbook definition goes something along the following lines. Uh, India has got in, people in India have multiple religions, but the majority of them practice the Hindu religion. Uh, And uh, the idea of Hindu nationalism is this idea of taking that Hindu religion and going to an extreme form of it, of really asserting the most extreme form of that Hindu majoritarian identity uh, and thereby oppressing the religious minorities. There are elements of that which are true, but I think uh, a, a different way of framing it, which is what I would prefer, is to call it more like the Hindu right wing because it, it combines uh, multiple oppressions and I think it's important to recognize that. Uh, one is what we just discussed, right? Islamophobia and the othering of other religions is a big part of it. There's no, there's no denying that. But, uh, if you look at uh, Hinduism itself, Hinduism is uh, you know divided into these, uh, has this caste system, which is a pretty essential feature of Hinduism. Uh, and what is the caste system? The caste system is basically a division of people into different castes, uh, which are hierarchical, right? So if you belong to an upper caste, a so-called upper caste, you have more rights than someone who is in lower caste. There's a notion of upper and lower. Um, and the people who belong, I'm going to use the word oppressor and oppressed. Um, so the, the people who belong to the oppressor caste are very few in number right And the people who belong to the oppressed caste are tend to be much larger in number. So second aspect of the Hindu right wing uh, is to take this caste system and, and really solidify it and to, to glorify it and establish it in its full you know uh, in its full force. Uh, so in that sense it's not really a majoritarian movement. it's a minoritarian movement in the sense that you have this upper the oppressed oppressor castes who are trying to really enforce this. And then there's a third element to it, which is the class politics around it. And class and caste and and religion are all kind of correlated in India. Um, So it's hard to disentangle them. But there is undoubtedly a class element to it. I mean, India has disgusting levels of inequality, Um, like India is languishing in human development terms. It's like, if you look at the human development index, India is like 129. Far very different from the stories you hear of India as this emerging power. What you do here in the news is more about the billionaires that India is producing, the amazing growth and so on, which is a very different kind of in India. So you have these extremes, uh, extreme inequality, and uh, there is a big class politics around it. So I would say the, hin- the Hindu right wing, I would call use the word right wing, takes each of these tendencies, the caste system, the, the religious oppression uh, and class uh, war and to its extreme. It's a right wing version of all of them.
0: So, Anila, I might address this question to you. Why is this issue of Hindu nationalism uh, emerging on the radar, as it were, here in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in the Seattle metropolitan area?
2: Great. Thank you so much, Jeff, for for having me on again. It's always an honor to be here with you uh, and in these conversations that are so critical. Um, I would start by saying just making a differentiation, a very important differentiation between Hinduism and Hindu nationalism or Hindutva. I think it's critical to make that a distinction because we are not against Hinduism as a religion. Uh, we are against sort of any kind of supremacy type movement, which is what the Hindutva is, the Hindu nationalism, the very same way that we draw the distinction between white nationalism or white supremacist movements and white people or white culture or anything else. So I want to start with that. Uh, The the second point that I wanted to make is I think this is a problem that we are seeing across the board in our country and in other countries as well, India being one example of nationalism growing and sort of making that distinction between nationalism and patriotism. You can love your country, but when it comes in a way that it excludes others or defines who's the in-group versus the out-group and really becomes a form of tribalism, then it is a danger. And we are seeing the sort of fallout from that kind of nationalism, uh, that Hindu supremacist nationalism from India, coming through even in our country and even here locally in King County in Washington State. And the way that it recently manifested itself, you know, we've had other examples, but the recent manifestation that I was involved in, that a lot of our Hindu community uh, activists uh, and, and leaders and groups and 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 Sikh organizations and Christian organizations and Muslim organizations. And Dalit organizations came together in response to a Washington state nonprofit that called itself the Alliance for Persecuted People Worldwide, or APPWW. And they portrayed themselves as a human rights organization, when in fact, they were just masquerading that way and actually using their platform to promote anti-Muslim sentiment. And there was a really ugly uh, and disturbing uh, documentation that we created of all of the various uh, ways that they were promoting anti-Muslim bigotry, the statements of some of the actual founders or people associated with this group, APPWW, the specific platform that they were giving at their events to keynote speakers who are noted anti-Muslim bigots around the world who they invited to be speakers, the the follow-up chat conversations in those events because of the anti-Muslim bigotry that these speakers were spreading. Uh, All of these were were manifested um, and Uh, in their actions and we actually put this in in a documented form working with over a hundred organizations we released a public letter exposing this group APPWW and part of the problem was you know there's plenty of anti-muslim hate groups out there they they promote all kinds of islamophobia and none of us are you know I don't waste my time on that however when a group is sort of um promoting themselves as a justice organization, and even getting, uh, seeking and receiving funding from places like the Washington Census Alliance, asking for funding funding from the city of Redmond, then it becomes a problem because those are not the kind of organizations that public organizations, that uh, public entities should be supporting. Um, And that's why now we have over 140 organizations have exposed and condemned this organization. And we specifically called on the city of Redmond because the city of Redmond, unfortunately, did have uh, some of its council members individually meet with this group. This group did a presentation to the, at a city council meeting, they asked for funding and support from the city council, and the city council president participated in an APPWW event lending city credibility to this organization that has otherwise been promoting anti-Muslim hate. So that's the context in which it became a very local issue and so many different organizations across a diversity of different racial, religious, and ethnic, uh, gender, sexual orientation, backgrounds, all came together in a broad, diverse, and beautiful coalition calling on the city of Redmond to condemn this group and the kind of hate that it was promoting, that was causing real damage to the everyday lives of Muslims in Redmond and in Washington state. Um, I, I will add that we did receive, we did get the a majority to pass a resolution condemning Islamophobia and uh, proclaiming Redmond to be a hate-free zone, but unfortunately, uh, Uh, The majority was not willing to actually come out and condemn this group.
0: Why is this emerging as an issue uh, in Indian politics right now and in a larger sense throughout the world? Because we know it isn't just isolated to India.
1: Let me just give you like a hint of history first, like where this starts, right? If you look at the ruling party in India, it's called the BJP, um, and the chief executive, the prime minister of India, his name is Narendra Modi. He belongs to this organization known as the RSS, which is like the social arm of the BJP. If you look at where the RSS started, right, the RSS was kind of founded about 100 years ago in 1925, right? It was pretty much inspired by Italian fascism uh, fascism of the time. Um, And uh, uh, that kind of was the root of this organization. One of the things uh, they were known for is the assassination of Gandhi. Uh, That is one of their uh, accomplishments. uh, (laughs) um, If you will, one of the things they were known for. One of the things that brought Anila and me together, one of the uh, the main things around the so-called CAA and RC laws, uh, what the Indian government has done is it caused, and we are like peaceful activists. We follow, we use democratic means, believe in civil disobedience. This is the kind of activism that we carry out. And there are many activists like that in India as well. Uh, What the government is basically saying is, People like that uh, uh, are basically carrying out anti-national activities, um, and in fact, are part of a terrorist plot. Um, you know, it's really Orwellian and its audacity, right? I mean, these are just absurd charges. Um, and, and not only that, when you, uh, coupled with that, is the fact that there are people who do inside violence, right? There are the Hindu extremists, uh, the upper caste uh, extremists, people who do inside violence. They. Nobody makes any charge against charges against them, right? On the other hand, peaceful demonstrations, people who call for peace are arrested with these outlandish charges. So the crushing of dissent is another uh, kind of a theme which is uh, really common between the right wing uh, there and here.
3: So a few years ago, I listened to a historian named Phyllis Tickle who talked about um her impression of the of the next <clears throat> twenty to forty years. And what she said was that we're at a kind of a hinge point in history, where a lot of the old ways of functioning in the world were just not going to work anymore. And uh, on top, and a big part of that, as Raghav said, is wealth and income inequality. And so we know from from people who've studied the rise of nationalism or dehumanizing movements within countries, that when people experience um, wealth and income inequality, when they experience hard life situations, and a lot of that's dependent on their own expectations not being met about what they should be able to accomplish or achieve in life uh, these kind of movements will begin to happen in both a case of the united states and india uh, th- these movements have been around for a long time they've been slowly building momentum they use the internet and in uh, chat rooms uh, they use a lot of a lot of the technology to expand their base um, in The RSS in India runs catechism classes with its members, um, and even young children who are, who are trained uh, with rifles and bamboo sticks. I watched a documentary the last couple of days around uh, teaching children to go for the head first and to break the head. One of the chants that they are led in is Mother India calls to you, anoint yourself with blood and worship with bullets. So people are being trained already to otherize and even being prepared for violence against their fellow uh, Indian citizens. We see the same thing happening with right-wing groups in this country, working for a long time to build up their base and waiting for the right moment of wealth and income inequality and other kinds of anxieties and stresses in society, including increased diversity here, uh, for them to be able to find their stride and really gain
0: power. Neil, any insights you would add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what Reverend Terry and Raghav have been uh, mentioning. I would just add specifically that I would identify it sort of as, as three or four Ps, uh, and specifically, they are politics. We see the politics with who's in office uh, and the kind of rhetoric that that person brings, uh, both here in our country, we've seen it in India as well with, with Modi as a prime minister. Uh, we have propaganda, and these are conspiracy theories that are often promoted and misinformation or disinformation that are distributed through various channels and really amplified in a lot of ways. And we know that confirmation bias with social media in particular uh, is at play there as well. Uh, Then we have prejudice, the third P. Uh, Prejudice being things like Islamophobia, like xenophobia. All of these really promote a certain narrative. And again, it goes back to sort of that idea of tribalism, of division, of otherizing and dehumanizing certain groups. And uh, the victims could be the same or different depending on country, but we have that at play as well, that prejudice that really drives this kind of propaganda uh, and the politics as well. And then finally, it's power. It ultimately boils down to power dynamics uh, and the sort of fight for power, fight for wealth uh, that we see happening again across the world and here in our country as well as in India.
0: So the question, I know we talked about the situation in Redmond and the uh, city council there, are we seeing other manifestations of uh, Hindu nationalists attempting to at least gain sympathy for their cause in the United States, or was this largely isolated here in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, Ragav, we might begin with you on that.
1: They're not hiding their ambitions at all, right? They're pretty open about what they do, and they do it. Uh, one of the things they, prob- it was on the electoral campaign when they got elected last year, and they immediately followed through on it, um, was the Citizenship Amendment Act. Um, The the stated purpose of the Citizenship Amendment Act uh, was uh, to grant, uh, you know, to take people who are fleeing religious persecution in neighboring countries. But uh, the way law was framed, it excluded Muslims, right? For example, the the Rohingya fleeing uh, genocide in Myanmar wouldn't be covered by the law, right? Um, So that was the law. And then uh, 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 if you just look at the goal of taking refugees. And there was no need for the Indian government to pass a law, right? Really, they, they, all they had to do was to ratify different UN conventions on refugees. Uh, the Indian government itself is signatory to the Global Camp, Compact on Migration. They just had to implement that. It suggests that the law wasn't intended to really address the problem of refugees, right? It, was, it had a different purpose, which was Islamophobic. Uh, and together with this, uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act, there was this other uh, thing known as the National Registry of Citizens. That was only applied in a particular state. Um, we saw its effects, uh, but they were proposing to extend that to the entire country. And what that does basically is to say, it puts the burden of proof or the onus on individuals to say, give me the documents to prove that you are a citizen, right? And they listed a variety of uh, documentary evidence that they mandated as, as uh, necessary to provide, provide the proof. And it was clear to everyone that by looking at this, these happenings together, that this was really blatant attempts to, to try and disenfranchise large fractions of the Indian public, right? Uh, Muslims, oppressed castes and others uh, uh, who would all be really, it, it would be impossible for them to furnish such documentation. So uh, what happened uh, as a result of that, of that was that there was a huge uprising in India, right? There was a huge movement in India. And there were solidarity movements across uh, around the rest of the world, one of them in the Pacific Northwest. And Anila and I were part of that. I was part of this group, the the Coalition of South Asian, uh, uh, South Indians uh, in America, the CSI, as we call it. And we all worked on trying to get the Seattle City Council to condemn uh, these laws of India. And we were successful in doing it. Uh, why am I bringing that up? Uh, because you know when we were working with the Seattle City Council to push this resolution through, uh, you could see the, the polarization uh, uh, that we have been talking about show up right here, right? I've never seen the South Asian community in, in, this, in the Pacific Northwest area more polarized. If you, literally, if you went to Seattle City Council and those recordings are all public, you can go look at it. You will see a polarization right there in City Hall, right? You will see a, a set of people who are for these laws, a set of people who are against these laws. Um, and you can see the shouting and the, the just the vitriol and the hatred, which is out there in the open, right? So that was kind of the precursor to what the abp that Anila was talking about. A lot of the people who are pro these laws, who wanted who move for these Islamophobic laws, went ahead and created this ABP-WW uh, almost as a, as a reaction to what happened with Seattle City Council. Uh, but to answer your the broader question that you're asking, right? Uh, the Hindu right wing is interested in having this, uh, in, is interested in getting its opinion across uh, outside of India, and why is that? Because uh, one of the big reasons is their vision of India is as a superpower. Right, they want India to be a superpower uh, with like veto power in the Security Council and a big major military player along with countries like United States and Israel. Um, and for that, public opinion across the world matters, right? They want to project this, they want to have this show of strength, project India as, as a major power center across. And that's why they really care about um, the public opinion in the US. A um, uh, few examples to show you uh, what the kinds of things they do, right? We saw a few examples in the Pacific Northwest, but um, across outside, outside of the Pacific Northwest, you can see, for example, uh, one well-known case was Sonal Shah. She was like a policy advisor to Pete Buttigieg. I- I'm giving examples of the Democrats because the Hindu right-wing tries to you know, cuddle up with the Democrats as well as the Republicans. And she was also a, a big player in Obama's administration, actually. She's an economist, right? She has a lot of very good academic, academic credentials. But her background is in the Hindu right wing. Her parents were, um, uh, were volunteers with the, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which is also one of these right wing organizations in America. Um, and she was, she also spent some time uh, and you know, gave her time and energy to this Vishwa Hindu Parishad. And she's never, and this is not, we're not talking about ancient past, right? This is all like the last two decades, right? Just before she joined the Obama. Obama administration. So, and she's never disavowed her links with those uh, groups. So you can see that there are these ties between uh, the Hindu right wing and even the liberal end of these uh, uh, spectrum here among the Democrats.
2: Part of the reason that we raise the concerns with APPWW is they gave platform at their events to different uh, candidates, uh, two specific candidates uh, who have been promoting anti-Muslim sentiment as well. Uh, One of them being Manga Anandat Mula, who's running for office in Virginia, who has said things like even like being friends with Ilhan Omar, or a Muslim basically, uh, is problematic and that alone is something that she's used to attack her opponent and has really promoted uh, anti-Muslim conspiracy theories here in our country. She's had a history of doing this and has continued to do so. Uh, We also had uh, Ritesh Tandon, who's challenging Ro Khanna in California, uh, who also has uh, sort of held some anti-Muslim views. Uh, We had examples like uh, Biden, you know, the the point that Raghav made, which is absolutely true, that this is not a partisan issue those two candidates were Republican. Well, the Biden campaign faced a lot of backlash and criticism because their Muslim coordinator, out, their Muslim outreach coordinator person was actually somebody who had uh, close ties to uh, Prime Minister Modi and, and some of these sort of movements that are of concern for folks. So that was another area of serious concern that has been raised. Uh, the documented uh, connections between Tulsi Gabbard, for instance, uh, and uh, the sort of BJP party has been another area of serious concern. And these are just a few examples of the way that Hindu nationalist forces, even from India, are having direct impact on our elections here locally.
0: So I think the follow-up question, and I might begin, uh, Terry, with you and Anila, and then also Raghav, is it seems inevitable that we're going to continue to be confronted by groups portraying themselves one way, when the reality, at the very least, is much broader than that. I would ask each of you to come up with any suggestions that you might have uh, for our viewers, our listeners, to get a better picture of who these groups really are, what their agenda is, and what the possible impact might be uh, in our communities, in our state, in our country.
3: Well, Jeff, that's such a great question, and it is an incredibly complex world we're living in. Um, You know, we're sort of used to understanding the dog whistles of American politics, um, so we don't have to we can kind of read between the lines and understand what people uh, what people mean. But now we're having to process like the dog whistles in multiple cultures simultaneously. And so what I want to say to people is that, that that's just difficult. and it's not just all up to them. So part of the reason I'm so proud to know Sister Anila and proud to know Ragav, is that they initiated a whole series of interfaith organizations, one hundred and forty of them, to come together, assess the situation, and decide that this particular group was not trustworthy, that they have an agenda, other than that, that they, that they publicly state. And so I think it's also up to faith leaders, uh, it's up to political leaders, it's up to interfaith organizations to come together and provide guidance about this. Because I know I don't know enough by myself, so all of us have to band together and do this work together, and then we can share that with the public, and they don't have to spend 14 hours in research uh, on their own.
0: Raghav and Neela and Terry, I thank each of you so much for being a part of this. I suspect this is going to be an issue that we're going to need to come back to. And I hope each of you will come back and be a guest on this program so we can discuss this further. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you each of you for tuning in to Challenge 2.0 this week. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Richard McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Pugia. Ian Olson is the production assistant. And the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Past to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.